We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Eric Arima. Sponsored by the AHIMA 22 Global Conference. If you are listening, you and your team belong at the AHIMA 22 Global Conference in Columbus, Ohio, October 9th through the 12th. Register at ahima.org. On this special 60-minute edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, we'll hear from Gloria Ann Bryant, Colleen Deegan, Terry Fletcher, Dr. John Fogel, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, Stanley Nockinson, Timothy Powell, and Kimberly Siri from Christianicare. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who never drank contaminated water at Camp Lejeune, only Perrier, Chuck Buck. Ah, thank you, Clark Anthony. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 525th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and good morning, Erica. <laughs> oh, Clark, you crack me up. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, all. Hey, we have a very impressive lineup this morning with thought leaders and newsmakers. You know, it's our National Healthcare News Roundup. It's a special 60-minute edition of Talk 10 Tuesday this morning. Yes, I'm looking forward to hearing what everyone has to say, but I want to take this moment to address that yesterday on Monitor Monday, Dr. Ronald Hirsch spoke about a DRG audit by a government contractor where a diagnosis was called into question because the query was felt to be leading. This Mm. led to a listener asking, does the law prohibit leading questions in queries? And Mm. asked for a source to be cited, if so. So the Mm. lawyers, my expert friends, and I all agree there is no law rule, or regulation which prohibits leading queries. However, Actus and AHIMA stipulate that leading querying is not compliant, and it is widely accepted that this constitutes industry standard. On Monday, the newest iteration of the guidelines for achieving a compliant query practice, the 2022 update, will be released. And next Tuesday... You know, we will have someone from AHIMA on the program to discuss it. I will also explore the topic of leading <laughs> queries in greater depth, and I will address the question as to whether queries should be part of the medical legal record or not. Wow, 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 wow. Really, really looking forward to that. Uh, by the way, uh, on our program this morning, we're going to hear from Kim Siri. She is with Christiana Care, and uh, you discovered Kim, right? Yes, and I will share with you how we were connected during my weekly talkback on PSIs. Excellent, excellent. Looking forward to that. Uh, coming up next is Tim Powell at the Talking Tuesday News Desk, and I just wanted to say to those of you who are working in hospitals in the aftermath of the hurricane last week, I want to thank you very much for your dedication to caring for people, patients who have been displaced or injured as a result of the horrendous devastation that was caused by the hurricane last week. Uh, we have much news to report, as I always say, and we begin this morning, as we always do, with Tim Powell. Tim is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Good morning, Tim. Thanks, Chuck. And sadly, about a month ago, my wife broke her arm. She slipped carrying a box when she was helping with the baby shower. She went to the emergency room at Mount Sinai Hospital in Miami. And here's a shameless plug. They were great. Mount, since Mount Sinai is a participating provider in our health insurance plan, the emergency room services performed by the outside physician group was covered under the No Surprises Act, and the physician group can't balance bill us for their services. Whether or not Mount Sinai was a participating provider, emergency services are still covered under the Surprise Billing Act, so we were safe. Now comes the tricky part. The hospital told us she needed to see an orthopedist after putting a cast on her arm. We got the name of an orthopedist that had staffing privileges at Mount Sinai. 
We scheduled an appointment with her at an office, which was a medical office building next to another hospital that was also in our network. All good news you would think under the Surprise Billing Act, we can't be balanced billed. Bad news is she needs a plate in her arm and the surgery is scheduled. We are surprised when the day of the surgery we are informed that unless we pay $1,392 as a copay, the surgery is just not going to happen. My wife is in great pain. We pay the copayment and she has a surgery. After the fact, I found out that while my orthopedist was not in my network and that the bulk of the copayment was because we were charged at an out-of-network rate. Since the physician worked at two hospitals in my network and the operation happened in an MOB adjacent to one of them, how did this not violate the Surprise Billing Act? Well, while the physician's office was next to a participating hospital, it was not in the hospital. And while the physician practiced at another participating hospital, the service wasn't performed in that hospital either. I did file a dispute on the charge, and being a consultant, I have resources, and I may be able to get some of my money back. The question is whether or not the average patient would have any recourse or even know to complain. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Wow, Tim. Thanks very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert, and he's also a national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. It's Tuesday. It's October the 4th, and you're listening to the 525th live edition of Talk Tim Tuesday. Stand by, everybody. Are you ready to create a better world where health is transformed by data and information advances? Then you belong at the AHIMA 22 Global Conference, October 9th through the 12th at Columbus, Ohio. Join over 3,000 innovative healthcare professionals for thought-provoking workshops and networking connections that will last a lifetime. Imagine a better world where health information is transformed by data, and you are at the center, recognized for improving lives, because you made sure that the data in any healthcare record was trusted. Find out how to make this happen at AHIMA 22, where you will be convinced that data is the new medicine and the work you do is vital. Register today at the American Health Information Management Association website. That's ahima.org. Now is the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Glorianne Bryant. Glorianne is substituting this morning for Lori Johnson, and good morning, Glorianne. Good morning, and hello, everyone. Today, I'd like to discuss some Z codes in ICD-10-CM. They are noteworthy and important to capture, especially for hospital inpatient data. Capturing palliative care is the first area I want to discuss. The National Institute on Aging, which is part of the National Institute of Health, states that revolving regarding the information of the definition for palliative care. It is specialized medical care for people living with a serious illness, such as cancer or heart failure. Patients in palliative care may receive medical care for their symptoms or palliative care, along with treatment intended to cure their serious illness. Palliative care is meant to enhance a person's current care by focusing on quality of life, for them and their family. Now, that's an interesting definition. It has some terminology in it that I've not heard before. Now, according to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, palliative care focuses on the relief from physical suffering, and the patient may be treated for a disease or may be living with a chronic disease and or may be terminally ill. And of that definition, I've heard a little bit more in my professional career. 
Now, in ICD-10-CM, the term or word comfort care, hospice care, which sometimes are used interchangeably, they are not in the alphabetic index, while palliative care is listed. And under the listing in the alpha, it'll direct you to the tabular at Z51.5, palliative care. And then in the tabular, there is no specific terminology inclusion terms for Z51.1, but if you go back up a little bit, which is good to do when you're coding at the Z51 category level, the instruction is code also condition requiring care. So that tells us that whatever the condition is that causes the reason for the calibrated care to be started or initiated needs to be coded also. Now, there are three specific AHA coding clinics that have been published around palliative care. So be sure to review them. We don't have time to do that today due to their length. Of course, the documentation of, quote, palliative care, end quote, is often seen in MD orders. Check, though, the medical record very carefully. Sometimes the MD order is in the inpatient acute care setting, but they didn't actually start the palliative care in that encounter or stay. Another important Z code to capture is for do not resuscitate or DNR. And ICD-10-CM, do not resuscitate, is listed in the alphabetic index under DNR, not under the word do or not. It's under DNR. And that leads you to code Z66. In the tabular, where you would go, of course, at Z66, do not resuscitate, does have an inclusion term, and it states quote, DNR status, end quote. Now, a standard practice in hospitals, acute care hospitals in particular, and most medical facilities that ask a patient about their or family about the wishes of the patient to be resuscitated or not if they have a cardiac or respiratory arrest during that hospital stay or encounter. There's documentation usually in the medical record to that, and it tells the physician and medical professional for that given patient that they should or should not resuscitate and start cardiopulmonary resuscitation if the patient stops breathing or their heart stops. Often, what's interesting is some of the mortality methodologies and algorithms look for this particular code in the data when they do their analysis. So that's an important one to watch and look for. The other Z code I want to mention this morning is Z75.1 persons awaiting admission to adequate facility elsewhere. This can be a valuable code to report for acute care hospitals when it's documented that the patient is planning to be discharged to another facility. However, there's no room. There's shortage on post-acute care placement facilities. I know you've heard of two in your areas. We do have uh, some storage on skilled nursing facilities, long-term facilities, rehab facilities. When that happens in the acute care setting, trying to discharge the patient, it can extend the length of stay, LOS. This can skew some data on your patient's average length of stays, et cetera. So I'm finding that some companies that do algorithms and data capture, mentality methodologies, they also look at that particular code because of the length of stay impact. This might be a good code to assign as a secondary code in our inpatient settings to capture those situations where patients extended their length of stay due to the fact 
cannot be placed elsewhere at that time. So it's something to think about in healthcare. It's also important to have clinical documentation for all of these conditions and situations, of course. And I think it's important to think about the Z codes, discuss them with your CDI staff, and of course, your inpatient coding staff. And happy coding, everyone. I'll have an article in the IC10 monitor on this. Back to you, Erica. That was Glorianne Bryant, an independent HIM consultant. Chuck? Thank you, Erica, and thank you again, Gloria and Bryant, very much. Returning once again with her very popular series on the 2023 E&M Code Updates, is Senior Healthcare Consultant Colleen Deegan. Good morning, Colleen. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning to the Talk 10 Tuesday listeners. So for 2023, revisions to the E&M category for nursing facility services include a deleted code, revised codes, and extensive guideline revisions. In 2023, this category of E&M services will have three subcategories instead of the current four, initial nursing facility care, subsequent nursing facility care, and nursing facility discharge services. The Nursing Facility Annual Assessment Code, CPT Code 99318, will be deleted with parenthetical reference to report this service with the subsequent Nursing Facility Care Codes 99307 through 99310. The subsection guidelines indicate that these services are reported to patients in nursing facilities and skilled nursing facilities. These codes should also be used to report evaluation and management services to a patient in a psychiatric residential treatment center, an immediate care facility for for individuals with intellectual disabilities. Regulations pertaining to the care of nursing facility residents govern, govern the nature and minimum frequency of assessments and visits. These regulations also govern who may perform the initial comprehensive visit. Revisions to this category and remaining E&M categories align the 2023 codes with the 2021 revisions made to the office and other outpatient services codes. So that means the three key components, the history, the exam, and the medical decision-making are no longer required for reporting nursing facility services. A medically appropriate history or physical as determined by the physician or advanced practice provider should be documented and thus the level of service is then determined solely by the level of medical decision-making or by time. In the American Medical Association did redefine what time includes for the selection of the level of service. So the time is now the total time on the date of encounter and includes both the face-to-face time and the non-face-to-face time. So some of the activities that the AMA has defined as part of total time is preparing to see the patient. So that's all that non-face-to-face time work that's done prior to actually walking into the patient's room. Uh, The obtaining uh, and and or reviewing separately a history that was obtained by someone else, uh, performing the examination, counseling and educating the patient and their family, ordering medications, ordering tests, ordering procedures, providing referrals and communicating with other healthcare professionals about the patient, 
communicating, uh, excuse me, documenting in the medical record or other health records, so the, the time spent to actually document the care is part of the total time. Uh, many providers independently interpret results and communicate those results to the patient and or their family. That's part of total time. And finally, care coordination. If you're not reporting care coordination separately, it is part of total time. So I have providers still very unsure about uh, total time and how to and what's actually included. So I encourage you, you know, to really focus on that piece as well. Um, the revised guidelines also state for a high-level medical decision-making specific to initial nursing facility care by the principal physician or other qualified healthcare professional is defined as a patient with multiple morbidities requiring intensive management, a set of conditions, syndromes, or functional impairments that are likely require frequent medication changes, treatment changes, or reevaluations, and that patients are also at significant risk for worsening their medical or their behavioral status and risk of hospital readmission. The principal physician is defined as a physician who oversees the patient's care as opposed to other physicians or QHPs who may be furnishing specialty care. The initial nursing facility care codes, which is 99304, 305, and 306, may be used once per admission per physician or QHP, regardless of the length of stay. They may be used for initial comprehensive visit performed by the principal physician or qualified healthcare professional and that skilled nursing facility, that initial comprehensive visit must be performed by a physician. That qualified healthcare professionals may report initial comprehensive nursing facility visits or nursing level of care if it's allowed by state law or regulation. I have shared the co-revisions for nursing facility services and a few of the key guideline revisions. If your providers see patients in nursing facilities, a complete understanding and review of the coding and reporting guidelines is essential to proper payment. Coding professionals should be aware of these revisions. They do affect reimbursement. I strongly uh, recommend you consider reviewing documentation practices and revised documentation templates that are not needed for patient care, and also consider how your providers can track total time to correctly report and bill for these services. And with that, back to you, Erica. Thanks, Colleen. That was Colleen Deegan-Ejack. Colleen is Senior Healthcare Consultant for 3M Health and my friend. Chuck? Thank you, Erica, very much, and thank you, Colleen. And be sure to read Colleen's reports on the 2023 E&M Code Updates is in today's ICD-10 Monitor. COVID is back in the news, and that's why we asked Dr. John Fogel to file this report with an update on COVID. Dr. Fogel? Chuck, an hour ago, I got the latest COVID-19 booster shot. Getting the new bivalent booster was a no-brainer. I still regularly see patients with COVID in the ER, but I can't remember the last time I admitted one who was fully vaccinated. COVID-19 remains a killer. More than 300 Americans die from it every day. The booster shot is just another layer of protection. Everybody I know is sick and tired of COVID, and I get it, but life feels normal to me. It looks a lot like it did prior to March 2020. I regularly go to the gym, eat indoors at restaurants, watch sporting events and crowded bars, and I've been to six weddings since May. The only time I wear a mask is when I'm at work, when I'm on an airplane, and when I'm with someone who has COVID. 
I'm not afraid of getting COVID because I'm protected by two vaccination shots, an early booster last October, and now today's booster. This newest booster, which was just released a month ago, specifically targets the Omicron virus lineage. Omicron has been with us nearly a year, and its offspring are super contagious. In fact, my wife tested positive for it yesterday. This is her second bout with COVID in less than three months. Having a previous COVID infection doesn't prevent reinfection. Although vaccination also doesn't completely prevent the disease, being vaccinated is best at protecting us from getting real sick, being hospitalized, and dying from COVID-19. Getting boosted also further protects us from long COVID. I don't want that, and you don't want it either. So what's long COVID? It's a variety of ongoing health problems that typically start many weeks or even months after a COVID-19 infection. Symptoms can range from excessive fatigue after physical or mental exertion, to headaches and dizziness, to a chronic cough and shortness of breath, to belly pain and diarrhea, and to debilitating muscle and joint pains. The most troubling can only be described as a persistent brain fog, preventing you from getting your work done or participating in social settings or simply just thinking straight. All of these side effects are nonspecific, so patients often undergo extensive medical evaluation without a confirmed diagnosis. Long COVID frustrates doctors and patients because there's no test to diagnose it, and blood work and radiological imaging may be normal, and we still don't know the long-term effects of it on the body. So I'll say it again. You don't want long COVID. Here's how to minimize your risk. Get vaccinated and get boosted. As I've stated before, just like with the flu, COVID-19 is never going to disappear. Virus mutations will continue. The biggest lessons we need to practice to protect us are the public health measures like good hand hygiene and face masks. They reduce the spread of most infectious diseases. And vaccines remain our best defense. It's not too late to get vaccinated against COVID-19. The vaccines still greatly lower the risk of serious disease and death. Just over two-thirds of our citizens are fully vaccinated, while only one-third of eligible Americans received a booster based on the original virus, and only 4% have gotten the latest booster. I won't mince words here. Chuck, that's not good enough. We need these numbers to skyrocket if we want to minimize the terrible human cost of COVID and future virus variants. The booster that I got this morning gives me an additional layer of protection against the beast that is Omicron. It also protects me against the possibility of developing long COVID. I anticipate that I'll be getting an annual COVID-19 booster along with a flu shot every fall, as should you. Nearly everyone knows someone who was hospitalized, was critically ill, or died from COVID-19. Although COVID will never disappear, we all can go on with our lives and mitigate the impact of the disease in the future. Protect yourself if you wish by masking up when you feel you are in a high-risk situation. Protect others, especially the elderly, and most importantly, make sure you are fully vaccinated and get the new booster shot, even if you've already had COVID-19. Tossing it to you, Erica. Thanks, John. I got my bivalent booster as well, and I strongly recommend everyone getting fully vaccinated and boosted also. That was Dr. John Fogel, an emergency physician and clinical educator. He holds academic appointments at Brown and Quinnipiac 
Universities and currently works as a per diem emergency physician at Rhode Island Hospital. Chuck? Thank you, Erica. And Dr. John Fogel, thank you again for that very timely report. Now is the time for our RegWatch segment. It features nationally recognized healthcare technology consultant Stanley Knoxon. Good morning, Stanley. Hey, listen, when it comes to healthcare regulations, what do we need to know today? Good morning, Chuck, and to everyone on the call. While we await the imminent publication of the final rules for the 2023 physician fee schedule, home health prospective payment system and outpatient prospective payment system rates and policies, there is good news for Medicare beneficiaries. CMS has announced that the Part B premium for 2023 will be $164.90 a month on average in 2023, down $5.20 from from this year. This is mostly due to the lower than anticipated spending on an Alzheimer's drug, which was not approved for general use. Expected higher costs for that drug had increased 2022 premiums. The Part D Medicare drug plan premiums are expected to dip about 2% to $31.50 next year. Additional savings for beneficiaries will come from the limits on insulin prices and reduced costs for vaccines. The average Medicare Advantage premium is projected to fall almost 8% in 2023 to $18 a month. CMS also projected enrollment in Medicare Advantage plans to rise in 2023 to 31.8 million beneficiaries. These plans continue to be popular due to their affordable premiums, prescription drug coverage, and networks of preferred doctors, hospitals, and pharmacies. Now, regarding the upcoming physician payment rule, a reminder that the proposed rule indicated that the physicians would see an 8.42% drop in Medicare payment rates next year a 4.5% reduction in the conversion factor, along with a 4% statutory pay-as-you-go sequester. Many physician groups have asked Congress and CMS for relief from this cut and for additional reforms in the payment policies to avoid these cuts. Several years ago, the system was reformed to avoid large cuts, but those reforms have not been as, as effective as the physician community would have liked. It will probably require congressional action to avoid cuts, The final rule will spell out the exact cuts that CMS will be making for 2023, according to the law. And another reminder that as as of October 6th, almost all patient electronic health information, clinical and billing records, must be made available to patients upon request, according to the federal regulations known as the information blocking regs. These regulations do not require providers and others to adopt or use certain technologies or platforms. They may use patient portals, other web interfaces, application program interfaces, and a multitude of technologies and platforms to make electronic health information available to patients for access, exchange, or use. Dr. Reamer, let me turn it back to you. Thank you, Stanley. That was Healthcare IT Authority, Stanley Nockamson. Stanley is the founder of Nockamson Advisors, LLC. Chuck? Thank you, Erica. And Stanley Nockamson, thank you again. And by the way, if you're listening to these healthcare regulations from Stanley and it's giving you some anxiety, well, you're not alone. Uh, we asked our Talked In Tuesday resident psychiatrist, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, for news about screening for anxiety. Dr. Moffick. Yeah, thank you, Chuck. You know, back on September 20th, 
for the first time, the United States Preventive Services Task Force recommended that doctors, practically meeting primary care physicians, use anxiety screening tools, such as the General Anxiety Disorder T, for those aged 19 to 65, only months before it had also been recommended for those aged 8 to 18. The main concern is that about 30% of people will sometimes develop one of the anxiety disorders, but too often don't get help or the right help. Their recommendations are open to public comment until October 17th. Here's mine so far in terms of my initial questions. One, risk of increasing burnout. How will primary care physicians already with a still rising epidemic rate of burning out be able to incorporate testing for anxiety into their already overwhelming practice? Two, risk of inadequate resources. If abnormal levels of anxiety are picked up by the PCPs, are there really readily available resources to adequately help? Three, risk of medications. If medications are relied upon for treatment of too much anxiety, how to control their overuse, addiction, or withdrawal problems? Four, risk of inadequate anxiety. How do we assess levels of anxiety that are too low, contributing to unhelpful indifference? Five, risk of missing screening. Since the level of anxiety often varies with time, what is a way to capture that outside of usual appointments? In other words, is there a sweet spot for our anxiety that is strong enough to appropriately motivate us, but not too strong to paralyze us? The beloved children's story of the three bears suggests that there is, as long as we can find it. Goldilocks tasted three different bowls of porridge, and liked the one that was neither too hot nor too cold. Don't forget that anxiety can be normal and help for the, for the appropriate amount of a given challenge, like those trying to recover from Hurricane Ian or protecting yourself from COVID. Anxiety can be said to be an emotional warning signal from internal thought processes, whereas stress is a response to ex- external factors. Each of us has our own individual thought tendency, which may be calming or concerning, depending on our prior history and current external threats. In early human history, the external threats commonly were predators or other situations necessitating quick action to survive. Now the threats can be more insidious as saber-toothed tigers have given way to stone drivers. Since we in psychiatry and medicine are the experts about anxiety and experts are asked to respond, and since we are in Mental Health Awareness Week, what do you think about them? Back to you, Erica. Thank you, Steve. And, you know, it's interesting when you were talking about this, I was wondering what actually constitutes um, generalized anxiety disorder screening. And so I looked it up, and I'm looking at the GAD-7, and I'm just going to read it out loud for you listeners so you can know what whether or not you actually have anxiety. Um, Over the last two weeks, how often have you been bothered by the following problems? And your choices are not at all, several days, more than half the days, nearly every day. And then the seven um, items are feeling nervous, anxious, or on edge, not being able to stop or control worrying, worrying too much about different things, trouble relaxing, being so restless that it is hard to sit still, becoming easily annoyed or irritable, and feeling afraid as if something awful might happen. So there's a, you know, a, a scoring, and if you have um, zero to four, it's minimal anxiety, five to nine, it's mild anxiety, 
10 to 14, moderate anxiety, and score greater than 15 is severe anxiety. So if you're listening and you find that you're really high on that scoring, maybe you need to see your doctor. Terry Fletcher joins us now to help you decide if screening for depression is payable or preventative for Medicare patients. Terry, it's yours. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. And happy Primary Care Physicians Week as well. I wanted to talk about depression screening because I don't think behavioral health gets spotlighted enough, especially when a pandemic hits like this, and the cause and effect of that from a mental health perspective. There's been nothing short of devastating for many. First, it is good to know that CMS started covering annual screening for depression for Medicare beneficiaries in a primary care setting about 10 to 12 years ago, but that wasn't always the case. For you coders out there, I'm sure you can remember a time like I can in the ICD-9 coding days about 15 to 20 years ago where we would get a, a diagnosis from our physician of anxiety or depression, and we knew that anything in the 300 code series of ICD-9 was mental health or behavioral health, and we were either going to get a claim denial or told the patient only had limited benefits of five to 10 visits or nothing at all. And most of us were like, are you sure there wasn't anything else you saw for the patient? But luckily that did change in 2011. And Medicare beneficiaries now have screening coverage for depression in a primary care setting where the practice has staff-assisted depression care supports in place to assure accurate diagnosis, effective treatment, and follow-up. However, there's been some confusion in how to report these services, what CPT or HCPCS code to use, if time documentation is a factor, and if there are specific tools that need, that need to be used to perform the service. So first, eligibility. Medicare Part B covers the annual depression screening, and the patient does not need to show signs or symptoms of depression to qualify for the screening. However, the screening must take place, again, in a primary care setting like a doctor's office. What that means is that Medicare will not cover depression screening if it takes place in the emergency room, skilled nursing facility, IDTF, an ASC, inpatient rehab facilities, hospice, or inpatient hospital settings. The annual depression screening includes a questionnaire that the patient completes with the help of their doctor or advanced practice provider. This questionnaire is designed to indicate if the patient is at risk or have symptoms of depression. After over two years into the pandemic, it is important to find out where your patient is mentally. If results show that the patient may be at risk of depression, the provider will perform a thorough assessment and, and may refer the patient for follow-up to a mental health care professional if appropriate. In most cases, depression screenings can also take place in addition to an annual well visit or during a scheduled doctor's office visit. Also note, a provider is required to review a patient's potential for depression and other mental health conditions during your Welcome to Medicare visit or the first annual well visit, but they're not required to formally screen for depression during either visit. During a review, the provider should discuss risk factors for depression, such as a family history, but the patient typically does not receive that questionnaire I mentioned. Are there sheriff costs for the patient for depression screening? If the patient qualifies for benefits under Medicare Part B, Original Medicare covers depression screenings at 100% of the Medicare-approved amount when the patient receives the service from a participating provider. This means the patient has no share of costs, no deductible or coinsurance. Medicare Advantage plans are also required to cover depression screenings without applying deductibles, copayments, or any coinsurance when an in-network provider is seen and the patient meets Medicare eligibility requirements for the service. During the course of a screening, the provider may discover a need to investigate or treat a new or existing problem. The additional care is considered diagnostic, meaning the provider has moved from screening to treating the patient because of certain symptoms or risk factors. Medicare may um, bill the patient 
or the patient, I'm sorry, the physician may bill the patient possibly for any kind of uh, extra services and Medicare may bill the patient for any kind of out-of-pocket if they move on to also an E&M or diagnostic care. It's the screening only that does not have any share of cost. HIXPIX code G0444 may be reported for an annual depression screening uh, up to 15 minutes using any standardized instruments like a, a PQH9. Now, for annual, that means one per 12-month period. And again, I keep saying in a primary care setting, what that means is with clinical staff who can advise the physician of screening results and who can facilitate and coordinate referrals to mental health treatment as necessary. A screening tool is instrument is necessary to support the service. I'm sure Dr. Moffitt or Dr. Zellum or even Dr. Google can assist with this list of tools. During per CMS at a minimum level, the staff-assisted depression care support consists of a nurse practitioner or a, physical, a physician assistant, that clinical staff in that primary care setting that can advise the physician of these results and can, again, can facilitate and coordinate referrals to mental health treatment. The code is worth about $18. The covered ICD-10 code for depression screening is Z13.89, and that's encounter for screening for other disorders. So bottom line, for Medicare's depression screening benefit, the following coverage criteria apply. Anyone eligible for Medicare Part B, screening only, it does not apply to depression treatment or a chronic condition caused by depression. There has to be one year between screening, 11 full months must pass following the month in which the screening occurred. So example, depression screening on July 12th, the next available couldn't be until July 1st of next year. It has to be furnished in that primary care setting with that staff-assisted depression care support and up to 15-minute screening. This includes time administering the screening tool, interpreting the results, and using the results as appropriate. Also remember, screening tests for depression do not diagnose depression. That's where the clinical assistant staff follow-up comes into play to advise the physician on the next step for the patient. For more information on reporting and billing for depression screening, see my article in today's ICD-10 monitor. With that, back to you, Erica. Thanks, Terry. That was nationally recognized professional coder, auditor, and consultant, Terry Fletcher. Chuck? Thank you both, and be sure to read Terry Fletcher's excellent article on this subject. It's in today's ICD-10 Monitor. And coming up next, another entry from Journaling John M.D. Was he caught in the middle of last week's devastating hurricane? We'll know. And a program reminder, you're listening to the 525th Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. It's a special 60-minute healthcare news roundup. Stand by, everybody. High-quality clinical documentation plays an essential role in getting paid correctly and improving patient outcomes. The Essentials for Clinical Documentation Integrity book uses a three-step approach to cover possible clinical indicators, risk factors, and treatments, all of which enable effective chart reviews and physician queries. The Essentials for Clinical Documentation Integrity book is the easiest and fastest navigation of any CDI how-to resource. Here's good news. When you purchase the book, you receive absolutely free the webcast, Severe Malnutrition, Increase Coding Compliance with Clinical Validation. That's a $149 value. Purchase the book, Essentials for Clinical Documentation Integrity, and get a free webcast, Severe Malnutrition, Increase Coding Compliance with Clinical Validation. That's a $149 value. Take advantage of this offer. Enter discount code FI031722 at checkout. 
We continue with our series here on Talk Enthusiasts called Journaling John MD. Once again, here is Dr. John Zellum. Good morning, Dr. Zellum. Good morning, sir, and thank you very much. And to answer your question, yes, I was safe during this horrible hurricane, but it was quite an experience. Same thing, understanding denials is quite an experience. Through the process of working on denials management programs, it's really become quite clear to me that it's not just due to physician documentation challenges, which we hear all the time. A few weeks ago, I presented a way to fight the numerous and egregious denials from Medicare Advantage organizations, citing regulations and more as part of your defense. Today, I'm going to focus on the clinical side of those denials. And as a baseline, so many financial components of healthcare facilities believe that the solution to dealing with denials is accomplished by having a strong CDI program. While this is very true, it must be realized that denials prevention must come from a strong clinical revenue cycle program of which CDI plays a significant role, but not a solitary role. Denials can commonly be uh, divided into two categories or causes, technical denials and process-related. These two categories, though, are not mutually exclusive in that not only do many of the causes of denials come from the provider, but the reality is, is there are deficiencies and reasons on the payer side. Based on experience with denials and peer-to-peers, physicians and their documentation play a significant role in denials, but again, not a solitary role. Understanding this concept is of critical importance in developing a program of prevention of denials as opposed to correction of denials. In addition, remember if there is insufficient documentation evidence to support an inpatient level of care and the patient is placed in observation, CDI never sees that patient since CDI is only involved with inpatients, not observation. Yet technical denials can still occur such as wrong dates, late notifications, authorization challenges, no MD notes, et cetera, and these things should never happen. Processes, edits, and procedures should readily be put into place. On the payer side, frequently medical directors do not have all of the pertinent clinical information due to what is provided to them by their own case managers, what is provided to to them by the provider, and of course, poor physician documentation, which still does play a role. Also, payers use their own modifications of the non-physician criteria that is used by provider utilization review, resulting in discrepancies. Payers will not typically divulge their, quote, proprietary criteria, end of quote. There are also regulations that exist providing guidance for approval of inpatient, but many medical directors do not know of them. That is why it is critically important that peer-to-peers be done by experts in this area, by an expert knowledgeable of all specialties, federal regulations, and payer contracts. As we know, more overturns will occur at the peer-to-peer level than at the written appeal. Part of the prevention efforts should be put forth in improving processes on the front end, reducing the correction that is needed to produce a potential denials-free atmosphere resulting in more sustainable revenue. Addressing these denials can be an extremely large project, especially moving from a corrections mindset to one of prevention. With that in mind, one must expect it to be a significant time and research commitment in the beginning. The payers will change the rules as you go along, and they do it often. So one must stay on top of the changes to optimize revenue recoupment. 
If one works hard and consistently at this, the return on investment can be significant. Remember that all levels of clinical revenue cycle must be involved, not just CDI. Provide feedback and celebrate every victory, no matter how small. Develop a dashboard of KPIs that makes sense for your organization. It's an ongoing battle. You may not win the war, but you want to win every battle that you possibly can. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, John. That was Dr. John Zellum, the founder and CEO of Streamline Solutions Consulting, and he's the physician advisor for Cameron Memorial Community Hospital and Adams Memorial Hospital, both in Indiana. Chuck? Thank you. Both of us here to read Dr. John Zellum's latest journal entry. It's in today's ICD-10 Monitor. Now it's the time for a very popular segment here at Talk to Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what's on your mind today? Well, before I'm going to do my talk back, I just want to uh, um, remind people, uh, Dr. Moffick uh, told me to remind people that if you felt you scored high on that uh, anxiety um, screening tool, that you should see your physician or mental health care provider that, you you know, we, we are not um, competent to make determinations as to whether we are actually um, experiencing uh, pathologic um, anxiety on our own and should really see a healthcare provider. Okay, so uh, um, I'm going to do my talk back now. And some of you listening were not even born or were just youngsters when the Institute of Medicine report to Air is Human, Building a Safer Health System was released. Studies have revealed that somewhere between 50,000 and 100,000 people died each year as a result of medical errors. More people were found to die annually from medical adverse events than from motor vehicle collisions, breast cancer, or AIDS. Besides the human toll, the financial costs of these medical errors were staggering. More recent estimates of medical errors have been in the range of 250,000 deaths annually, representing the third leading cause of death in the United States. Safety was defined in the report as freedom from accidental injury. Not all errors result in harm, like a patient who needs potassium supplementation accidentally receiving 40 milliequivalents instead of 20 milliequivalents might not have received the correct amount ordered, but it was not so excessive as to cause a problem. Errors which result in harm or injury are defined in the report as adverse events, but not all adverse events are avoidable. The study was intended to identify which adverse events are preventable and how to implement strategies that address medical error at the systemic level. The report culminated in multiple recommendations, including creating a center for patient safety within the Agency for Healthcare Research and uh, Quality, which is uh, ARC. Systems for reporting and monitoring the occurrence of errors were established, and programs which established patient, uh, sorry, performance standards and expectations for healthcare organizations and professionals focused on patient safety. One of the programs set in place was the Patient Safety Indicator, or PSI, metrics. PSIs are intended to identify potentially avoidable safety events representing opportunity to improve healthcare delivery. They primarily deal with in-hospital complications and the majority are related to procedural or operative interventions, including obstetrical ones. If you work with PSIs, 
be sure you are using the current set of specifications. I recommend that institutions strive for, but it is not realistic to expect that they can actually achieve an incidence of zero. Even under the best circumstances, with the most meticulous prevention, stuff happens. It is useful to peruse the benchmark tables and compare your rate to the observed rates derived from the healthcare cost and utilization project or HCUP data. If your hospital's rates greatly exceed the published benchmark rate, your organization may benefit from a closer inspection of that PSI and creation of a preventative program. I strongly recommend that organizations investigate PSIs with the intent of identifying opportunities for improving patient care. For ways to decrease the incidence of potential, potentially preventable adverse events. Too often, I see institutions performing intricate clinical documentation contortions to make it appear as though PSIs have not occurred rather than analyzing root causes and eliminating system processes which enabled these PSIs to occur. If a post-operative wound dehiscence rate is too high, the answer may not be to conjure up exclusion criteria, but instead to have the culpable surgeon wash their hands better. In August, I received a question from Alicia regarding PSI-4, which is death rate among surgical inpatients with serious treatable complications. I turned to my LinkedIn community to see if any of my connections had experience and advice on this specific PSI. Dr. Dr. James Kennedy gave us some insight about a month ago, and we were delighted to have, to do, to have Dr. Raj Dubaya from Christianic here also offering up his organization's expertise. Therefore, we are embarking on a four-part series here in ICD-10 Monitor and on Talk 10 Tuesdays concentrating on patient safety indicators. The professionals from Christiana Care are going to detail how they built a multidisciplinary PSI review team and give us specific insight into multiple PSIs, including PSI-4, PSI-90, and some other individual PSIs. Please tune in and give Dr. Jennifer Brettler and Ms. Kimberly Theory a warm Talk Then Tuesday welcome. Feel free to send in questions to cbuck at medlearnmedia.com in advance or during the um, via segments, and we will try to address as many as we can. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much for your talkback segment and for the preview of our upcoming PSI series. And a program reminder, folks, you're listening to the 525th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. It's our special 60-minute live national update of Healthcare News Standby, everybody. Dramatic constant change is the new norm for society and for healthcare. With so much upheaval, you must adopt new practices and protocols, including how you access continuing education. It's important to stay current with ICD-10 coding best practices and the latest rules. Plus, CEUs are still needed to maintain professional credentials. Now get critical continuing education with a subscription to ICD-10 Monitor educational webcasts. For one affordable annual fee, everyone on your team can access dozens of exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcasts covering a comprehensive range of timely, vital topics. Is an ICD-10 Monitor subscription right for you? 
Visit ICD10Monitor.com to learn more about a webcast subscription. Just a couple of minutes ago, you heard Dr. Erica Reamer discuss PSIs, patient safety indicators. And joining us now for an overview of our upcoming series on patient safety indicators is Kimberly Siri. Kim is the Associate Director of Coding and Data Quality at Christiana Care. Welcome to Talk to Intusa, Kim. Uh, we're looking forward to your first uh, presentation to PSI. It's going to be here on Talk to Intusa, October the 11th. But give us an overview of the series and the people who are going to be participating on your behalf. Sure, happy to check. Thanks for having me. It's going to start off with Dr. Raj Subaya, who's our UM and Quality Vice President. He's really going to share with the group the vision associated with the program, the things that we've put in place to really move to a high-performing um, organization. And then Dr. Jennifer Brettler and I are going to really dig in a little more to the PSIs, starting with PSI 4, talking about inclusion and exclusion criteria, really going beyond that, looking at the data beyond just coding. Um, I think that people often overlook that PSIs are more than the coded data and really digging into those data elements associated beyond the coding. How did this come about at your facility, this enthusiasm for PSIs? We became interested when it appeared that we were performing below industry benchmarks. We had concerns. Um, Dr. Sabai really dug into the data. We had deep discussions, chart reviews, peer discussions, clinical discussions, to understand why we were not performing at the level that we expect to. So uh, after you had this internal review, I'm going to say internal review, I'm sure it was, uh, what was the outcome and what, what was kind of the plan of action for implementing this uh, multidiscipline PSI team that you've assembled? So I don't want to give away Dr. Sabaya's whole story, but um, he really was the man with the vision. We at our organization did not have a physician champion um, to evaluate patient safety indicators. Um, we didn't have that clinical expert. We used to farm it out to a bunch of different clinicians who were really specialties in their area. So, for example, if we had a PSI that involved a surgery, it would go to a surgical champion of sorts, but they really weren't entrenched in the coding and documentation processes. They truly weren't that subject matter expert that bridged the coding and the clinical. So they were giving a very narrow response, agree, disagree. There was no knowledge sharing. There was no clinical growth for the coding and CDI team, and there was no coding growth for the clinicians. And that's really where we needed to change our processes and dig deeper. So how do you judge your effectiveness today with your new PSI program? We have a dashboard and metrics that we follow very closely on a monthly basis. We also um, share our data within a cohort and compare against that cohort, um, and that usually is on a two-month lag, but we do also internally have a monthly dashboard, and we've tracked and trended, and now compared to our cohort, we've moved really to eighth place where we were in the 80s um, nine months ago. Dr. Erica Rimmer, what's your reaction to what you just heard uh, Kim say? I really am so excited to um, participate and hear it this entire series. I think that this is going to be fascinating on patient safety indicators, and I think that our uh, audience is going to learn a lot from it. So I'm really looking forward to it, Kim, and thank you so much for you and your organization offering to help us. Thank you, Erica, very much for calling us. Subject to our attention a couple of weeks ago, our first broadcast dedicated to PSI is going to come up on October the 18th. We're also going to be publishing this on ICD-10 Monitor, and that is going to be a wrap. 
For this special 60-minute edition of Talk to Tuesday, I want to, of course, thank our panelists this morning, Gloria Bryant, Colleen Deegan, Terry Fletcher, Dr. John Vogel, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, Stanley Nackerson, Timothy Powell, Kim Siri, whom you just heard, Dr. John Salomon, of course. Very special thank you to my co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, folks, you can listen to all of Talk to Tuesday broadcast on Stitcher. You can listen to it on Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for ICD-10 Monitor Talk 10 Tuesday. Everybody have a great week. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.